Yeah, it's me.
Hi. Wow. Welcome back to the weekly review. Welcome back, I guess, to myself, too. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We are on unceded Ramatush Ohlone land. For more information, please go to weeklyrev.org, click on our land acknowledgement tab, and you can learn more about the history of the land and uh, places to donate, as well as maps of other parts of the world and um, with indigenous names of lands that you're on, and lots more information. I can't do it, uh, do credit right now, but please do check that out, weeklyrev.org, and click on the Land Acknowledgement tab. Uh, yeah, back here in the studio after having one week off, and uh, I know it's it seems like, wow, a lot's changed in the last two weeks. Um, well, um, Israel's still bombing Gaza, and uh, police are still killing people. Uh, protester at a memorial 
for someone who was killed, Winston Smith, who was killed by the police, was struck by a white supremacist and was killed. And um, police are looking to raise their budgets. And uh, just today, the president um, <sighs> decided to uh, classify uh, anarchists as domestic violent extremists. So uh, yeah, wow, good times, right? Um, so this is a new uh, anti-terrorism initiative that classifies anarchist violent extremists that oppose all forms of capitalism. And pretty much, if you have a fucking brain and a heart, you should oppose capitalism because uh, in order for capitalism to exist, people have to be poor. And uh, it's fucking disgusting that this is uh, not surprising and also it still can be disgusting. So this, uh, uh, this classifies anarchist violent extremists that oppose all forms of capitalism, corporate globalization, and governing institutions which are perceived as harmful to society. Hello, they are harmful to society. Look around. Um, and so we're, uh, <laughs> so now uh, anarchist violent, quote unquote, I'm, I'm going to stop trying to repeat their, their framing of it here, but uh, domestic violent extremists. Meanwhile, white supremacists are literally fucking killing people. Cops are literally fucking killing people. And folks who oppose that are thought of as the enemy. Yay. Great times. Um, so my question, I don't know how many Biden supporters are out there listening to the show. However, uh, w uh, you know, if you're angry about something when Trump was doing it, why aren't you also angry when Biden is doing it? That's my question. I also you know, ask the same things similar to the Obama when he was president, and there are similar policies being passed that harmed people. Just because you got a D next to your name doesn't mean uh, you're good for the people. I shouldn't have to say that, but here we are, living a very uh, propagandized country. I myself have been victim to that and I'm still unlearning quite a bit of what I was fed through the media, through schools, a uh, variety of institutions. And there's so much to unlearn, there's so much to question. And it's pretty fucking disturbing when uh, people will lie, they'll give their lives for capitalism while their neighbors are starving. Anyway, um, I used to be a comedian. Do you know why I changed? I mean, I, mean, I still try to find humor in it. However, I want to help build a world where people can actually perform comedy and make people laugh and have expression. And it seems like uh, you, uh, <laughs> this seems to be, for me personally, just a bit more pressing, I guess. And also people didn't like laughing when I was talking about uh, horrific state violence. Um, not that you should laugh at that, but uh, perhaps there's a time and a place and comedy clubs are not that. All right, so there's some construction going on outdoors. So, um, and, so, slash and, I'm going to be sharing a video today, well, audio video. It's video on this end, however, I'll be sharing the audio, and folks, if you're interested, you can check out the video version of it. And I did a workshop this past week um, that was put on by Flying Over Walls, which is the Bay Area chapter of Black and Pink, um, which provides support for LGBTQ folks who are incarcerated and um, they shared a lot of great resources, and this was one of them, and it's called Mutual Aid is a People's Movement, which is an ASA 2020 Freedom Course, as always, um, at least for the past couple of years, last year, I don't know, what is time anyway? Been sharing links on our website at weeklyrep.org, so um, after this, um, you'll be able to go to the page and you can also access all this information and share it. Please do share it with your networks and stuff. And you can also find it on YouTube. It's, so this was uh, published by the American Studies Association official. And they have, so you can subscribe to them on uh, YouTube. And they, this came out on May 4th, 2020. So I'm going to read a little bit more 
about it before we continue. And then also afterwards, I will uh, share a few more news items. Um, perhaps it might be a little bit more quiet. Perhaps not. We'll see. Um, and also play some music throughout the program. Um, did want to share the names of the bands. Uh, start off with a song called Wake Up by Chastity Brown and then Judy French by White Weeper. And we'll have some more music that's lined up throughout the show. And so Mutual Aid is a people's movement beyond philanthropy, charity, and dependence on the police state. An American Studies Association 2020 Freedom Course recorded on April 22nd, 2020. Framing questions. What is mutual aid and how is it different from charity, philanthropy, and state social services? How is mutual aid part of current and historical freedom, liberation, and self-determination struggles of different peoples? How are mutual aid efforts responding to the COVID-19 pandemic? How can people participate in mutual aid projects right now? And the participants are Rachel Gilmer, uh, Helen Pena, and Dr. Armin Henderson, uh, Dream Defenders, and you can find more information at dreamdefenders.org, uh, Amika Tendaji, and Ujima Medics, and you can find the information at umedics.org, uh, Miriam Kaba, uh, Project NIA, and project-nia.org, Dean Spade from the Seattle University School of Law, you can find more info at bigdoorbrigade.com, and it's facilitated by Dylan Rodriguez from the University of California Riverside, president-elect of the American Studies Association 2020-2021. And Dylan was a guest on our show back in November of last year. And if you listened in last week, uh, Pam, thanks Pam for playing uh, that episode again. So you can hear an interview we did with Dylan as well. Additional resources, they have courtesy of the participants, Big Door Brigade, materials for mutual aid syllabus at bigdoorbrigade.com and they have a link. They have a lot of links here. So what I'm going to do is share a link to this YouTube page on our page, weeklyrep.org for today's date and you can click on it and find more info. So without further ado, I was gonna play some music, but let's just get into it. And I may interject along the way if there is text that I can read to share um, and perhaps taking a little bit of a music break in the middle. We'll see how it goes. I'll be listening to this for the first time as well. Um, so yeah, thanks again so much for tuning in and here we are. Uhuru, sisters and brothers, the first thing I want to say is that I love you. And the second thing I want to say is that we can win. We will win our liberation. And in order to win our liberation, we have got to think positively. We have got to believe that we can win. And if we don't believe that we can win, we'll whip before we start. We've got to realize what dangers exist, and we've got to look at those dangers realistically. We can't afford to have a subjective, distorted, irrational fear. We've got to look at the obstacles to our liberation coolly and clearly, and to develop ways to get rid of those for us to struggle for us to fight for our liberation and for our nation. Welcome everyone. The full title of this discussion, um, we're calling it an ASA Freedom Course, and the title is Mutual Aid is a People's Movement Beyond Philanthropy, Charity, and Dependence on the Police State. 
And uh, I'm thrilled to, to welcome a group of folks to talk about this. Uh, I'm gonna ask everyone to go and introduce themselves one by one. I'll, I'll, call, your, I'll call out your name and then I'll ask you all to just talk for a minute about um, who you are and, and why you're here. Um, my name is Dylan Rodriguez. I'm the president-elect of the American Studies Association. I'll be president as of July 1, 2020. I'm professor at University of California, Riverside. Um, and I've got longtime uh, roots and devotions and accountabilities to different organizations and movements, including abolitionist organizations and movements. Um, if if you all are cool with it, I'll go with you. Uh, I'll go in the order of, of how you all appear on my screen. Just ask you to introduce yourself. Anything you want to say about yourself is fine. Uh, let me go with, with Helen. Let me have to start with you. Hey y'all, my name is Helen, she, they pronouns. Um, I've been organizing with the Dream Defenders for about two years now. Um, I am a black feminist, abolitionist, um, here fighting for the radical futures that we deserve. Um, I'm, I've also co-founded a feminist, queer feminist organization called FemPower, um, and I'm currently working on a community bond fund um, through Dream Defenders and FemPower. Hi, I'm Amika Tendaji. Uh, I'm with Ujima Medics, Medics for short. We um, are Chicago-based. We teach first response for gunshot wounds, asthma, seizures, um, yeah, etc. Hey everyone, my name is Rachel. I use she and her pronouns and I'm with the Dream Defenders. I've been organizing with Dream Defenders since 2015. Um, and I'm really excited to be here in conversation about mutual aid. Dream Defenders believes in um, building and exercising dual power, so working inside and outside the system. So excited to be in this conversation with folks today. Hi, I'm Dean Spade. Um, for about 20 years, I've been working in different kinds of mutual aid organizations, a lot of which are focused on people who are criminalized or in prison or facing um, immigration proceedings. Um, I teach at Seattle U in the law school. And um, for the last four years or so, I've been maintaining this uh, website that's a mutual aid toolkit called Big Door Brigade to try to make um, the idea of mutual aid um, more accessible to more people um, and make people not have to reinvent the wheel and be able to um, build off of each other's experiences and efforts. Hey, I'm Armin Henderson. Um, uh, I am an assistant professor of medicine at University of Miami. I'm also director of health programs with Dream Defenders and been with Dream Defenders since 2014. Um, and uh, as part of this mutual aid, we run like a, a community emergency operations center, um, specifically during hurricanes, but throughout all crises. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you, everyone. As will surprise nobody who knows her, Miriam Kaba is on another organizing call as I speak. She's just getting off it, so uh, she's going to join us in the next minute. So in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and introduce her. Uh, Miriam Kaba is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots abolitionist organization that is seeking to stop the incarceration of young people. She has founded multiple organizations over the years, including the Chicago Freedom School, the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, the Chicago Alliance to Free Marissa Alexander, and the Rogers Park Young Women's Action Team. Uh, I should I should say that I first got to know Miriam uh, in her role as a co-founder and member of We Charge Genocide, an intergenerational effort to document and intervene on police violence and police brutality in Chicago. Miriam has been active in the anti-gender violence movement for over 30 years, uh, and in addition to being a member of Insight Women of Color Against Violence, she and my wonderful UC Riverside colleague, Elisa Bieria, co-founded and actively organized the Survived and Punished Collective. 
Currently, Miriam is working as a researcher in residence on race, gender, sexuality, and criminalization at the Social Justice Institute of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, where she's going to be through September 2020. So um, uh, I welcome Miriam to this conversation. She'll join us in just a second. Something that came to my mind that sparked, the, in my view, the need for this conversation is how the COVID-19 pandemic has once again uh, kind of accentuated and amplified how the existing version of the U.S. state and all its iterations from local to federal it, it is not only poorly equipped to provide medical emergency and other forms of care for large numbers of vulnerable people, but is actively organized to neglect specific and targeted populations, poor people, working people, segregated black populations, incarcerated people, um, you know, unhoused people, undocumented people, elders without caretakers, et cetera. Uh, so part of something that came to, 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 the, to, to mind for I think a lot of us um, that are in, engaged with, with different forms of social movements and, and social justice and abolitionist struggles is, is that while mutual aid uh, organizations and work has come to strong attention during this pandemic, it, it also has long historical roots in movements for survival, liberation, and abolition. So um, I, I would just like to start the conversation by um, asking you all that are, that are grounded in the work of Dream Defenders in Florida and Ujima Medics in Chicago to, to define mutual aid based on your organization's work and, and clarify for everybody that's watching this how mutual aid, as you all see it, is different from conventional notions of charity, philanthropy, and state social services. Um, yeah, I don't particularly love the term mutual aid. I think it, it implies, um, I mean, I mean, we forever have associated, I mean, that word aid with um, a kind of charity model. Uh, Ujima means uh, collective work and responsibility. And so uh, that, that's, that's what we, we prefer, right? Um, your solidarity is bound up with mine. Uh, uh, my liberation is bound up with yours. Solidarity is, is necessary for us to move forward. And for Black folks, uh, and Numetics is, is an all-Black collective, help is not coming. And the closer you are to Black, the less help is going uh, to come. So we have to take care of each other, um, figure out uh, autonomous systems while demanding um, that that the state, uh, uh, philanthropy, government, what, whatever government, nonprofit or for-profit ent entities are doing their um, responsibility, but with the understanding, like we are all we have. You could you talk about you know in looking at looking at the 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 UMedics website and how you all define your struggle and how you ground it. Uh, what what really jumps out and what should jump out for for folks that are watching is that go and look at your site is is how serious and rigorous you all are about grounding grounding the way you think about your present day day-to-day -day work in, in in long history of hemispheric black struggle for for survival for abolition for transformation for liberation and so forth so because could you talk just a little bit about that and because i think it's it's deep how how you 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 started your response by saying you actually don't like the term mutual aid so could you talk a little bit about about the black radical traditions that y'all ground yourselves in that we can think about as alternative uh, uh, ground grounding or, or alternative foundations for even talking about this, this this topic. These are actually the skills that Black people um, need to have uh, because when anything um, happens, 
then there's not going to be, you know, help for us, right? But also in, like, granny midwives um, who had uh, incredible um, birth outcomes and low infant and maternal mortality rates who were completely undermined and decimated by industrialized medicine. Um, And industrialized medicine, um, and while eumetics is made up of uh, some healthcare professionals, is with the understanding that historically industrialized medicine is not something that Black folks could or should trust. Um, And so we also need collectives of people who are um, gathering, returning to long-held um, knowledge and really like trying to collect that, share it with each other, um, and, and balance that with industrial medicine. And last, last thing, Amika, as a quick follow-up, could you, could you talk about what, the, what you see as the most critical day-to-day work that, that UMedics does right there in Chicago and, and, and what, the, what the kind of roots and origins are of the organization and the collective? Yeah, I mean, so predominantly we teach people skills that save lives. We teach bystander first response. Um, We recognize that that ambulance times in Chicago, um, which is pretty violent, were were slow um, and folks weren't getting the help that they need. And while we were uh, a part of and friends with organizations that were fighting to reopen um, emergency rooms, uh, get level one trauma centers on the south side, and doing a lot of work that helps this problem, um, we needed more people to understand how to, 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 to do things right there on the scene. Um, in addition, what's really important to us is like for, for black people, for brown people um, who, who really come from these like really strong traditions of, of uh, um, ancestral medicine, right? We, are, we turn over like all autonomy um, to all autonomy over our bodies um, to industrialized medicine. So, I mean, there's not, we're not practicing like collective sharing, um, uh, figuring it out. There's no like nearby, even like root woman, which they have all through like Latin America. Um, you know, you, you go to the Walgreens or you go to, you know, uh, the ER. Most people don't even have access to a primary care physician. Um, and so we, you know, day to day are talking to folks, um, teaching them how to do these things and trying to have, um, you know, we thought through earlier models of Black first responders. Um, we never reach all over or compare with uh, the system. And so we were like, what if we just teach everybody? So similarly, I'd like to hear uh, about, about the origins of Dream Defenders, um, the political and, and, and other traditions that you're grounding your work in, and what it is that y'all are responding to on the day-to-day and how you're practicing on the day-to-day. So Helen, maybe I'll jump to you first. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I can start off kind of by talking about what our perspective of mutual aid is. Um, Dream Defenders often uses um, the phrase, we keep us safe. Um, Basically, while the state, in the name of safety, invests in violence and waging wars all over the world and caging our people and deporting our people, instead we're saying safety is providing lifelines for our communities and providing the basic tools that we need to survive and thrive. 
So it's basically us saying that we're going to care for each other while the state doesn't do its job to do so. And we're going to create new relationships, new ways of relating to each other um, while pressuring the state for not doing its job. Um, I do agree with what um, Amika was saying in terms of solidarity. Um, it is an instinct of human solidarity. Um, it, that's what mutual aid is. It, it's much bigger than just like saying, I love you. It is, yes, I love you. I care for you. I feel for you. I see you. But it's also something that we've developed as a human species, as a part of our evolution, that it's about our collective survival. It's about knowing I cannot survive if you're not surviving. So it's about making sure we're all surviving um, and recognizing our shared fate. So Rachel, let me go to you on this and see if there's if there's things that you'd like to elaborate with Dream Defenders. Yeah, I think the only thing I'll add is maybe just like a little bit about our founding and how we kind of came across mutual aid as like a key part of our strategy. So Dream Defenders was founded in 2012 after Trayvon Martin was killed and young people came together from across the state of Florida to basically demand justice, which at that time was demanding for George Zimmerman to be arrested. Um, in the days after he had killed Trayvon. And a year after that, we basically did a big takeover of the Florida Capitol. And, um, you know, this was like pre-Black Lives Matter, so it was like a, a really big movement moment because like for me, you know, it was like the first time that I had seen like young people of color like confronting power in that way and, and inspired action all across the country. But coming out of the Capitol, we were there for 30 days despite like being really like, you know, gaining lots of like popularity and notoriety, we went from like zero, you know, zero followers to like 50,000 Twitter followers. And, you know, one of our founders being on MSNBC all the time, but we didn't really like win any material change coming out of that experience. And it's because like, you know, like, especially being in the halls of the capital of Florida, it's like, we've been under like Republican trifecta control for like 20 years. We have a super far right, you know, racist um, set of politicians who run our state who are in bed with like, you know, the private prison industry and the NRA and all these different super corrupt actors. And so coming out of that experience, we really realized we needed to do some like deep assessment of what it actually meant to build power in a state like Florida as young people of color. And so one of the things we did was we actually like did a listening project across Florida and um, we went and knew that like we were abolitionists but we wanted to like see where our communities were at and what we found in those conversations was that um, you know lots of people were like um, the you know police you know people didn't necessarily believe that police were the answer but they were also like my number one issue is safety and um, they couldn't like, people couldn't imagine um, a solution outside of police because that's like, you know, people like, you know, that there is no alternative. People were sort of just like, we need more police because there's crime in our community. And so for us, we realized that we couldn't just be like moving campaigns that were like fighting for decarceration. We needed to do that. And um, that we needed to focus on elections to change the political landscape, but we actually had to be like, working with the community to actually build alternatives to this system to get people as helen said to actually re relate to one another differently and to like re to relate to the solutions differently and so that's when we started using like transformative justice 
um, and um, exploring more with what it meant to build alternatives and where we really landed on like this idea of we build power within the state through elections against the state by campaigns that push the state and then we build alternatives outside the state. Um, and our political vision is called the Freedom Papers. It's an abolitionist socialist vision. That's kind of our North Star, but those are all the ways we fight for it. Um, and yeah, it's been really amazing. I'm excited for both Armin and Helen to share more about how the, the projects they've built in the wake of the coronavirus and how much, um, you know, it hasn't, yeah, it's not a matter of charity to our people, but it's a matter of building power with our people and building solidarity to not only um, make sure we, ha um, we have each other's backs and people have what they need, but also to like fight um, for a new world together and to build the political power needed to do that. I gotta find the words because y'all are so fucking brilliant. Um, speaking of the police, uh, Armin, uh, Dr. Armin, um, you've been very open and public about your own particular encounter with that, with that primary contradiction and irreconcilable contradiction um, that, uh, that, 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 that was just mentioned here, you know, by, by Rachel, which is around this, this uh, dependence, ideological dependence, I think more than anything else that folks have on, on the police as a primary provider of safety and security. Uh, and yet, and yet you recently, had a direct encounter, you know, during this this period of the pandemic, with the police um, during your everyday practice of trying to care for people as a as a medical doctor. So, um, Armin, Dr. Armin Henderson, do you think you could you could maybe touch on? I'm trying to be sensitive to the fact you're probably tired of talking about this too, but um, but maybe you could touch on this as a way to get at another dimension of what Dream Defenders does and what you do as a as a as a practicing doctor in um, relation to to the work of Dream Defenders. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I, I guess I could not have gotten arrested at a, at a better time. I mean, honestly, you know, we were <laughs> delivering tents to, to homeless individuals and, uh, you know, I was in front of my house and, of course, I got arrested or detained. And um, and uh, honestly, if it wasn't for my, my wife who who decided to put it on, on social media, I wasn't even, like, thinking about it that day. I had so many other things that I had to do. Um, that people started to like pour in support and, and you know be upset and and then you know I saw the video etc so I released it um, but you know we really well actually let, let me go back so so I started uh, organizing with Dream Defenders in 2014 uh, when I came to Miami for residency and uh, and ever since then you know it's just been like a listening project for me uh, personally around uh, you know, what, what my contribution to, to Dream Defenders could be. And, of course, I, I participated in a bunch of campaigns that they had going on. Um, alongside that, I was also working with people in the community as well um, that are sort of related to Dream Defenders, but, but not, uh, but still doing, you know, similar work. Um, and, uh, and what we came to the conclusion of doing, basically, is something that's similar to what Amika uh, was, was defining around gun violence, teaching people how to bandage gunshot wounds and approach, you know, situations with tact so that, you know, you get the right response from police and hospitals and stuff like that. Um, but, but also in crisis as well. Um, and so Miami is uh, at the helm of climate change. We get hurricanes every year. And basically what we've seen is that specifically during 2017, during Hurricane Irma, we saw that the government really just neglected 
you know, vulnerable populations, black populations throughout Miami-Dade County, and, and honestly, it was throughout the state. Um, and so uh, we, we really just got fed up, I think, and said that we're just going to do it ourselves. Um, and so at that time, I, I didn't know we were calling it mutual aid. Like, we just, it was just like community members stepping up and, and filling a void where the government didn't. Um, and I, and I think, I think it, it, it is in a tradition to kind of shame the government into doing what they, what they say that they're going to do on paper, uh, but that they really don't. Um, and so through that, we were able to build like a network of individuals who, who knew that the government uh, didn't have the best interests um, at hand for vulnerable communities. Um, and so we, we, every year we just come with the expectation that we're going to step up and do something during hurricane season. And, uh, and I think it really uh, came to fruition uh, during this pandemic where, um, where, okay. Um, uh, so, so basically, you know, when I got arrested, we were, we were serving, you know, the, the unsheltered population in Miami-Dade County. And of course we gained traction already, but the arrest really gave it extra uh, traction. And so we kind of used the media um, that, that was garnered to, to draw attention to the way the state was treating uh, unsheltered populations. Um, and, and for the most part, uh, right now I would say it's really been working. Um, okay, give me a second. And, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, we're working to get people off of the street. We're working to get people tested, uh, giving people tents to shelter in place, providing masks, people are making masks. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was just awesome to see the same network that we're using uh, during hurricane crisis to now be activated for this crisis because it's the same, it's almost the same sentiments that are going on, basically. Um, and and just, to, just to close, um, well, two things. The Dade County Street Response is, is an organization that we created specifically because the system of medicine is racist, it's white supremacist, it's based on capitalism, um, but also because physicians were becoming employees of hospitals and they weren't really, they didn't really know what was going on in the community. Um, and so, you know, the organization that, that I work with, we focus on getting people in tune with things that are going on in the community, getting them outside of the hospital doors as soon as possible. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, with that said, in terms of like mutual aid and solidarity, because I had to write this for someone who asked me about it. it his name was Edward Galliano. He said, I don't believe in charity. I believe in solidarity. Charity is so vertical, it goes from the top to the bottom. Solidarity is horizontal, it respects the other person. We have a lot to learn from other people. And I, I really, I really agree with that. Um, and and I, I think if anything, if, from calling it you know, mutual aid, we should just call it solidarity, because that's what we're doing. We're standing in the lines, we're standing in, in, we're putting our bodies on the line for people whom we care about, people in our community. And it's, it's not just to say we care about you, it's that we're here for you. and. And here, here's my contribution to make sure that, that you're, you're surviving like I am. Absolutely right on. And, and, and just to re reiterate, um, Armin and all y'all, I, I just want to say how much um, I and everyone watching appreciates you allowing us to pull on you because I know Armin, Armin's very clear that you have many people there that need you. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to leave that in the final video. So, uh, so I, I just I think it's, it's just part of, the part of the reality of the condition, but also part of your work. Let's be real, right? This is not separate from what you just talked about. I mean, this is entirely central to how we how we should be thinking about the um, situation that you had with being detained by the police in front of your home. That you know you have children that that right there and youngsters around you that need you. And 
Um, I'm just glad that somebody was there to um, to watch your back and make sure that this thing got politicized rather than privatized. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, and I'm sorry to make you have to talk about it again, but I do appreciate you sharing that, you know? Um, you know, so so something's come up that I know, Marion, that you talk about, that you've been talking about quite a bit lately. So I wanted to maybe move to you um, to ask this question. Well, first, let me, I, I want to ask you just a broader question uh, about how, how we should be thinking about mutual aid as um, part of current historical, you know, freedom, liberation, self-determination struggles, right? But 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 on top of that, I'm also interested in hearing your thoughts on how to navigate this tension. I think all the folks that have spoken already have have have, have been navigating for a while now, which is, you know, what do you do in relation to the state and making demands on the state? Um, you know, because because part of this is you don't want to let the state off the hook for um, creating the kind of infrastructure and providing the kind of care and resources that people vitally and urgently need. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're speaking, we're, everyone here is thinking from a politics that is beyond a liberal politics of just relying on the liberal state to, to live up to its billing, so to speak. So, so I don't know what, what you can help us with, with in, in analyzing this, Mary. Sure, thanks for including me in the conversation. I have so much respect for um, everyone who's on this call, who uh, I've known in multiple kinds of contexts over the last few years, and just so much uh, appreciation for them and their work and their thinking, which informs my work and my thinking also all the time. Um, I'll just say that for me, um, I've been thinking a lot. My friend Veronica introduced me a few couple years ago to a way of thinking um, about work and organizing in our context that came from uh, comrades of hers in Chile, who when she was, you know, asking questions about the relationship of her own organizing to the state were kind of confused by the, by her confusion and said, well, you know, the way we think of it in our country here and our struggle in organizing is that for some of us, we're working inside the state to resist to the levels that we can in order to be able, based on our capacity and our ability to feed our families and all the things that are real there. Um, so we're working inside the state to try to do what we can. And for others of us, we're constantly working against the state. So we're making demands, we're pushing from the outside, we're saying, you know, you need to live up to your, quote, uh, the enticements that you've created, including declarations of human rights and constitutions and narratives that you put out about what caring and protecting your populations, you need to do that. And so the pushing against it on a regular basis. And then there are folks who are doing their best to try to agitate and organize outside the state. And I know there's a huge literature and conversation about whether we can ever get outside the state, right? Like, I don't want to get into that. The, the conceptualization of having multiple layers and multiple fronts at which people are working is what feels most useful to me in how I'm trying to figure out how to navigate in the current moment. A lot of what we've done in transformative justice work over the last couple of decades has been to try to situate ourselves as much as possible outside the state, to try to make claims of prefiguring a world in which we want to live that we feel is to the extent that we can be outside of the state. Um, so I think of a lot of what we try to do around mutual aid 
um, in whatever terms we try to use mutual aid, you know, it predates the, the word mutual aid, right? People have been trying to take care of providing for people's material needs at, I mean, as long as we've been people and humans and trying to kind of figure out how to cooperate rather than to compete. That's been the case. Um, so I like to think of the three levels and try to constantly think of how we're going to be trying to marshal those who are working inside the state and hold them accountable to resistance, how we're going to try to do the same for the folks who are against the state, and how we're going to try to operate outside of it. I think the last thing I'll say for this for now is that, you know, I really appreciate uh, Nils Christie's conceptualization of the state stealing our conflicts in an attempt to talk about restorative justice and the need for it, um, he kind of conceptualized this notion of the state has stolen our conflicts and what we're trying to do is to actually, uh, through restorative justice and other kinds of alternative forms of justice making, we're trying to take those conflicts back from the state and try to manage them through our social relationships with each other. Um, I think about that as well as the fact that the state in some ways has stolen our skills. You know, we are people now who are so incredibly de-skilled at doing basic things that in fact, because 911 is so ubiquitous, because it's so seductive, because it's three numbers to remember, because it means you don't even have to get involved, it's very seductive to not figure out the skills that you need in order to be able to transform conflicts in your day-to-day -day life, right? We, I think, in the same way have to, through mutual aid work, what we're trying to do is reclaim our skills, the skills we need in order to be able to relate, to live together, to cooperate, to have our solidarity be matched by an actual level of skill that allows us to think about what we need to be able to do. And I'm thinking about this COVID moment as frankly some place where we should be figuring out the skills that we need to relearn, that we've forgotten how to use, or that has been stolen from us, this is a moment for that to be happening. So, you know, Amika speaks very much about, you know, learning how to bandage gunshot wounds. Well, you know, that's a skill we should know how to do, all of us. And that's kind of the, 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 the way that they're presenting that to us is an opportunity, frankly, for us to be able to uh, reclaim those skills that have been stolen from us. And so I think a lot about that in the context of all this conversation that we're having around mutual aid. Now, that's a brilliant analysis. And I think it, 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 it pushes us to revisit, I think, the last half century of that skills stealing um, and skills criminalization. I'd say it's, it's, it's both a stealing yes. and a diluting, but it's also been criminalized because now it's Christie, who you just quoted, has one of the best definitions I've ever heard of criminalization, right? That first you have a bunch of human acts. Then you have the state stepping in to define some of those acts as being criminal and attaching them to certain right. people as criminal, right? So, 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 Marion, what you just said brings to light, um, you know, a, a, another perspective on on what on what Amika and Helen and Rachel and Armin have all been referring to, which is, you know, the work of Ujima Medics, Dream Defenders, and other similar organizations, and I think um, 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 analogous and parallel organizations in terms of in terms of organizi organizing politics, uh, is drawing from this deep historical. Uh, archive of, of of everyday practices that vulnerable, enslaved, colonized, and in, 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 you know, incarcerated populations have had, and which were radically politicized, you know, through different 
grassroots revolutionary and radical movements um, through, through much of the 20th century, and which were then seized by a combination of the state and philanthropic organizations around the, around the early 70s into the 80s, um, and turned into this, and turned into this, um, th this, this version of, of, of a kind of neglect state. I don't even want to call it a, a, like a, a, like a kind of gutted social welfare state. It's more of a state that is actually premised on an institutionalization of targeted neglect, asymmetrical targeted neglect of certain peoples and populations, right? Um, that brings in Dean. Um, Dean, the, the work that you've been doing for years, obviously, for years and years and years, um, but which has come to, I think, very acute attention now because of because of these you know unprecedented pandemic type conditions is is you have a real sharp analysis and you've offered people I think a highly accessible resource online to clarify what the difference is between philanthropy, charity, um, and even state social services and and the version of mutual aid that you're articulating and that you're trying to trying to be in solidarity and partnership with. Could you walk us through that um, as a preface for people watching this? That will hopefully follow up by taking a look at at the at the website that I'm referencing of yours um, in in the title in the title of this piece. Sure. Yeah. Um, I just want to say too, it's so interesting this conversation about mutual aid and the term. I keep having this conversation with elders who you know people I know who've been in movements who are in their 70s, who uh, you know have been in movements doing you know direct support people in prison for decades, doing direct support people. Um, uh, in all kinds of conditions, and who, and also being part of, you know, work against U.S. military imperialism, civilization, et cetera. And they're like, what is this term mutual aid? I've never heard of it. You're just talking about what we've always done. Um, and I think it's just interesting to look at, I think a lot of different um, traditions have different words for this, and it really doesn't matter. The point is just we want words that feel politicizing. We want words that feel like it's not like volunteerism, right? That's what I think, you know, um, it's a, a through line I see. Um, but in so many ways, and I think Miriam in some ways just said this, like, uh, people have always only survived and evolved by supporting each other's survival collectively and cooperatively. And then colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy came in and was like, let's divide you up. Let's make sure that you can't share. Let's put you in competition. Let's make you have to go through us to get your necessities. Let's go through our food system, go through our housing system, go to, you know, right? And, and then people have survived despite that by still doing what we call mutual aid together. And in most social movements, mutual aid, is the thing that most people are involved in. So you hear in our US, you know, uh, twisted, limited versus charismatic leaders, the person who signed the law, the person who shook hands with the president, the person who had the most famous speech, but the ordinary people, and especially most often women, women of color, doing the actual social movement work is, is, the, is the care work, is the how do we all survive work. And that's also the on-ramp to social movements, right? And so you see the most visible examples of this we talk about on the left in the US are things like, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers in the 1970s doing these mutual aid programs like Free Breakfast or taking over Lincoln Hospital. These were the places where people who have who are supposed to be demobilized, because right, we're all supposed to be demobilized, get to like say, hey, look, this group is doing this thing that meets my immediate needs and gives me a framework for destigmatizing my poverty and the fact that my community is in this position, and I can join up with it and build this shared analysis and learn how to make this spin this into collective action to get to the root causes. Like that's so important about mutual aid is this on-ramp to how to join, right? And because we need to mobilize hundreds of millions of people for change, this is so important right now because we have really effectively been demobilized, right? Like you look at in the US, a lot of people are just like, I'm only supposed to give to the ACLU or uh, you know, post on social media about my views. I'm not supposed to be in it. 
with everybody, right? And so this, I think this COVID-19 moment is interesting for that reason. To talk about this difference between um, solidarity and charity that we're all talking about, I, I really want to point to the Insight anthology um, about the nonprofit industrial complex, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, which Dylan's um, introduction to that in that book has, has so much power in it. So much of the, it's, you know, it's woman of color feminist analysis of how this nonprofit system built and how the social service um, system built to, to both, to do a couple of things, to depoliticize survival work and to say, oh yeah, I mean, as Dylan says brilliantly, like we're gonna like basically assassinate and, and imprison people who are doing root causes work, right? With COINTELPRO and all of the sort of tax on our movements. And then we're gonna give chump change to people who will do depoliticized service work. So this is a direct attack on what like the Black Panthers and Young Lords are trying to do, which is like politicized survival work, right? And so there's a lot of big differences to notice between there, right? Like the model of charity and social services is a model where rich people decide who's eligible for services, they fund only those projects that frame services in the way that they like. And the way they like is to say there's something wrong with people who are in need instead of there's something wrong with systems that put people in need. So, oh, are you homeless? Well, you need to be sober. You need to take these meds and not these other pills. You know, then maybe you'll qualify to be on a wait list for a million years for housing. And well, a very small number of people will get very temporary survival. That's charity's framework. It keeps things the same as much as possible. It keeps the status quo going, keeps rich people rich, poor people poor keeps the extraction going and um, doesn't lead people to be mobilized towards root causes. It blames poor for poverty, right? Social uh, uh, mutual aid is, or solidarity work, all the stuff we're talking about is the exact opposite. It says, oh, you're homeless? Well, that's because of the capitalist housing market. That's because of white supremacy. That's because of heteropatriarchy. We want to give everybody everything they need with no strings attached, no special criteria, and um, move towards collective action that will get to the root causes. So that's, I think, a kind of fundamental difference. And the way that, part of what matters about that right now with COVID-19 is when you get a kind of mainstreaming of the idea of mutual aid, like it's in a lot of media and stuff, we have the danger, just as you said at the beginning, Dylan, of people, because we've been raised in a culture with charity, like applying that stuff in their mutual aid projects. So being like, only sober people can move into this housing we've just occupied, or only, you know, this stuff comes up. Um, we have that. We have those modes in us. That saviorism is something people fall into. Those kinds of hierarchical, um, really colonial structures, putting that on top of our our collaborations together. So how do we keep it horizontal? How do we keep it um, focused on mobilizing? How do we make these projects and movements grow and grow and put into more and more instead of having them get really small and clickish and you have to have the right jargon? These are some of the challenges that I think people are facing. Miriam, you wanted to add something. Yes, I just wanted to add one quick thing to um, the conversation that's been had already. And just to point people once again to concrete examples that maybe they even have heard of before, but haven't thought of in the context of mutual aid. And one of the most successful, at least in the 20th century examples, beyond the Young Lords and the Black Panther Party that have been mentioned already, is the Montgomery bus boycott. And I just think, you know, sometimes we kind of uh, uh, obscure uh, what is really just basically very simple. And the Montgomery bus boycott as a direct attack on the state not providing transportation to mostly black women who were the ones using that transportation to go and basically be able to economically provide for their families since they were the domestics and the cooks and the in white people's homes they were taking that public transportation saying no in fact we don't want to be second-class citizens we but we deserve a right to be able to you know use these uh services in this way 
So in order to do that for a year, what did people have to do? People had to arrange for carpools for everybody so that they wouldn't take public transportation. People had to cook in order to be able to raise money that would continue to fund the thing all over again. People had to be present for each other. There were no strike funds. People were basically raising that through their own means to make sure that people who couldn't get to work could still survive. You know, like these were the things that were going on. And I think if people just take a look at our history, and I'm saying in this case, in the US context, you can really see the way that survival work was directly part of political work that was intended to shift the power imbalance that Black people were experiencing in a colony within a colony. So I think that, you know, I think I just wanted to point that out to folks who often ask, like, what is a concrete example? I don't know what that looks like. What is, like, that's not charity, right? That's not. That was deep political organizing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and I, would, I would just add to that. Um, we have this, this rich and still growing history of uh, prison strikes and jail strikes and detention center strikes where all forms of organizing are happening among, among people who are in the most focused subjection to state violence, people who are absolutely isolated from other human contact and yet are finding creative ways to organize uh, these, these mass struggles that, that end up spreading across the country to, to directly transform the conditions that are proto-genocidal inside these different sites of incarceration. So yeah, these traditions are actually, um, we have a wealth of these traditions to draw from. We just, we just need to have a kind of analysis and a language to facilitate it. Um, so th that, that kind of leads me to the last part of our conversation. Again, I appreciate y'all being here together with us um, and sharing this with everybody. Uh, I wanted to ask a question that's specific to the conditions of right now, uh, meaning the COVID-19 pandemic and the different forms of um, vulnerability, of illness, of casualty that people are suffering. I I'd like to ask, um, you know, our, our folks, our folks here, um, Amika, Helen, Rachel, Armin, I'd like you all to talk a little bit about how you see your organizations responding uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the communities and the people that you're seeing that are most in, in, in need of care of what we were calling, we were calling mutual aid, maybe still are calling mutual aid during this pandemic and why? Like, is there anything in particular about this pandemic that's been, th that brings new things to your attention um, into the organizational work. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, everyone. Um, I've really been learning a lot from all of you. Um, so immediately, um, Dream Defenders' train of thought was, of course, as soon as this broke out, was to think about what are the most vulnerable communities that we need to um, show up for in this moment. Um, and so what we started off with was, of course, the street team um, in terms of just going to the Overtown community, which is a historically black and poor community, um, to provide free testing for houseless people with Armin, um, provide basic things like masks, gloves, hand wipes to stay sanitary, to stay safe, um, and then also providing people with tents, food, um, hot food, showers, um, you know, um, porta potties to go use the restroom, um, and then also putting pressure on the institutions whose job it is to take care of these people, like the houseless trust, um, who haven't been doing their job. So that also ties into the bail work that I kind of spoke to earlier that we've been doing in collaboration with FemPower. Um, 
it's a similar population. Um, a lot of the reason why people are in jail is because they don't have homes, so they can't be released, and they're being detained because Miami and South Florida is in a housing housing crisis. Um, and so we knew that one of the most vulnerable communities was obviously our folks, our people on the inside. Um, jails are death traps always, but especially right now, we have thousands, I think over 5,000 people in Miami-Dade County jails right now. Um, and of course, the people on the inside cannot uh, social distance. That is not an option. There's 30 to 40 people in a cell at a time. Everyone's sharing everything. Everyone's scared. Um, we've been getting calls and emails nonstop about how worried people are um, to lose their lives, to lose their loved ones' lives. Um, several people have tested positive um, already. Um, and there's not a form of communication happening um, from inside to outside. So we're not really knowing exactly what's going on. Um, and so, of course, our, our response was to start fundraising to bail people out and to really preserve their lives and, and just, like, show up for our people. Um, so we're providing them with housing. Um, once they get out, we're providing people with food and connecting them to social services. Um, we've also are, uh, have created a hotline where we can connect to people on the inside, um, listen to, to what their conditions are, um, and bailing them out wherever we can. Um, this is a kind of model that we're adapting statewide. We've started off in Miami, and we're going to do this all across the state of Florida to get as many people out as possible. Um, and, you know, like Dylan was talking about as usual, using mutual aid as an on-ramp for how to join the work and to build power, um, we're connecting people to our campaign work, to our campaign called Free the Block, which is about ending money bail um, and, and pretrial detention in Miami. Um, so, so that's how it's sort of all coming together. Um, and that's a little bit about what's happening in Miami right now. So far, we've bailed out 13, we bailed out 10 people and have gotten out three people out on house arrest. And we're going to keep doing it um, until we can get people out. Um, this is also a, a part of a broader campaign to, um, we're basically pushing for um, our state attorney to release them all. Um, we're pushing for the judges and the mayor, Jimenez, um, to release people um, because, of course, we can only do like, what we can with the money that we raise, but this is the state's job to, to release people right now. And we're seeing it happen. We're seeing it happen all over the world right now too. Um, so we're basically doing this in order to pressure the state to do their job as well. Um, the bail work that y'all are doing brings to light that uh, the fact that for a lot of people who don't, who, who aren't one or two degrees connected to somebody, a loved one um, who's, who's incarcerated or has been through the system for, for some of the folks that, that, feel themselves to have a relative distance from the so-called criminal justice system, it's their first time realizing that the overwhelming majority of people who are in jails have not been convicted of a crime. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, it's such a basic rudimentary fact of, of, of the U.S. criminal justice apparatus that, that for some reason the common sense of criminalization is so deep that, there, um, that, there's, that there's a profound lack of widespread understanding that that's what a jail is, right? It's where you keep basically poor people who haven't been convicted of anything and who can't afford bail. So um, that kind of work is deep, and I think it's, it's, it's pushing um, an abolitionist uh, kind of analysis and, and, and politics forward. So um, let, let, me, let me go to you, Rachel, and then, and then Armin, if, if it's cool, I'll go to you next to talk a little bit more about Dream Defenders. Oh. Yeah, just the... 
only thing I'll add, and Armin can speak more to this, but you know, with the street team, in the first couple of weeks of Armin leading the street team, we got lots of press and the press really wanted to present it as like a feel good story. Like, look at this amazing University of Miami doctor with all these community members going out and serving the homeless community. And they just really wanted to make it seem like this, yeah, this feel good feature story in the wake of the pandemic. And we had to be really intentional to be like, no, 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 no. Like we are not superheroes and it is not revolutionary to be, to be going out and making sure people have the basic things that they need in the face of the pandemic. And how do we use the work that we're doing to like turn, to turn up on the state and actually hold them accountable to, to, to the real things that they should be doing for people right now. And so we made a real intentional effort to actually try to pivot away from the feel good story. Um, and like this, this past week, we did a big press conference where we like put pressure on, basically we have a homeless trust in Miami who gets $90 million a year to make sure that homeless people, you know, support homeless people around their needs. And they're not really doing anything right now. Um, and so we used the press conference to talk about the fact that the state is, the state's in action and put pressure specifically on the head of the homeless trust who also happens to be a um, lobbyist for the for-profit prison company, the Geo Group, um, and really draw the connections between like 25% of the people who have been arrested right now on the streets are, are have, who have been arrested and sent through the jail system since the corona outbreak are homeless. We're passing out tents. The state is then coming, police are then coming and crushing those tents because of loitering laws. Um, and so we're really just trying to um, use sort of the fact that people, I think, um, you know, are drawn to the work that we're doing to then say, hey, this is not a feel good story and point the finger back to the state. Um, and not only the, the inaction, but the fact that their solution is criminalizing people and using resources to criminalize people as opposed to put people in putting people in housing. Um, you know, we're in Miami, there's high rises, empty high rises all over our city, empty hotel rooms, and the city could certainly use those to, to house people. And so really drawing out um, the state's ineffectiveness. Um, and I think we're actually starting to gain a lot of traction and like starting to see that we're maybe, um, you know, actually starting to gain traction on some of our demands, which is exciting. Outstanding. No, um, um, Armin, Armin, can you talk a little bit more about about the work that you've been doing, um, at, you know, as in your medical practice, perhaps, uh, in in relation to to COVID nineteen and the pandemic conditions? Yeah, I mean, so I've just been focusing uh, more so on on testing um, individuals. Uh, as you see all across the United States, um, the number of tests that people are getting, particularly those who live in, you know, black and and low and working class um, uh, neighborhoods it's been few and far between. Um, and so we've been tracking the numbers with, you know, an epidemiologist, with other public health crises workers um, who have really been able to display not only that the, the under-reporting of cases and the reason why that is, but also the number of deaths too. Looking at the number of deaths, following the number of deaths from, from the state standpoint, and actually um, looking at the reasoning of why the numbers are so low. Um, so I'm in a, a physician group, uh, a medical group of like 110, uh, you know, medical providers across the, the United States. And I posed the question, 
you know, that in Florida, for instance, our numbers, our number of deaths are really low. And, and other people chimed in and said, yes, ours as well, we're following it, et cetera. And, and then when you, when you look at the numbers that, like in a case like Florida, the politics around having the, the number of deaths so low, regardless of who's dying, black, black people are dying, you know, frontline workers are dying, um, et cetera, teachers are dying. Um, but they're using these numbers to justify whether or not they should open up the economy. And so, and so in reality, it's, it's been an eye-opening, um, an eye-opening uh, moment of truth for those, for, particularly for physicians, not only because now they figure out their, their relationship to capitalism um, and because a lot of physicians are now employees, employed by the hospital, then they get treated as such like regular employees like McDonald's workers, when they come to work, you know, you don't get what you need, you know, you're, you're underappreciated, undervalued, et cetera, regardless of how much you get paid. Um, but also they're starting to see the breakdown of government as well. So I think in this moment, we're seeing a lot of physicians who have actually become radicalized to unionize, to call out government, to be very vocal. And so it's just a really interesting time. Um, but also on the ground, you know, just, just uh, you know, with, with just testing people is just very political because people don't want to know the real numbers, you know? If, because if there are a thousand homeless people that test positive, uh, then all of a sudden a thousand homeless people need to be uh, housed by the government. And so the numbers are kept low from, the, from, from you know, a political standpoint from the state level and also from the local level because people don't want to show you the inadequacies of government. And, and I, I think that at the very least, that's what this pandemic has done, has been able to show people who normally think that the government works for them. Of course, black people know that the government doesn't work for them. But, but particularly, you know, like white people, et cetera, you know, those who are in, you know, upper class, they're seeing the, the actual breakdown of government in real time. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's been very interesting. Amika, could you talk about, about what um, UMedics has been, has been seeing on the day to day? Yeah, um, for the most part, uh, we've got a lot of um, uh, medical professionals um, and uh, folks who you know, are responsible for care for somebody else. So we, we weren't able to do a lot of the kind of boots on the ground, um, passing out of supplies, mutual aid stuff um, that uh, a lot of other folks are doing, which we appreciate. We did partner with Equity and Transformation, EAT, um, to help them do a little bit of that. And we have been focusing on um, doing webinars uh, on the intersection of, um, of, of what asthma looks like in this um, COVID pandemic, particularly like when people are being turned away from ERs. Um, asthma was our second module after um, gunshot wounds. We really wanted to do something a little bit lighter um, people always say, like, um, I hate that you have to teach people gunshot wound first response. And, you know, um, and, and so it was a, a little bit lighter. But also asthma for us is just, it's, there really should not be um, many asthma deaths. It, it really just shouldn't happen. Um, if we would, you know, be able to uh, address environmental racism, um, you know, strong people had quality access to health care. Um, the, the, the number of asthma deaths should go down um, greatly. So um, we're really looking to prevent um, more people, uh, more loss of folks um, from asthma and talking about um, how you handle asthma in the now and also how to advocate 
for yourself or your loved one if the emergency room is telling you no? I'd like to maybe bring 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 Dean and Mariam back into the conversation quickly and, and ask you all to, to kind of give your perspective on a similar question, which is uh, whether, whether you all are thinking about particular communities and populations or maybe geographies of people that, that are also in severe need of, of, of solidarity, of, of so-called mutual aid, et cetera, during, during this pandemic. Um, let me start with you, Mariam. Sure, I mean, I think it's been spoken to already. Um, everybody who's most vulnerable, the people who have the least access to resources and power are obviously at, always at greatest need. But I do wanna just reiterate the fact that people are already doing mutual aid for each other in those spaces every day. It's why and how they're able to survive in the first place. So this isn't something new that anybody's bringing to anybody. It's not some sort of program that comes off the shelf. It's just survival work on the day-to-day -day basis. So I just want people to really Absolutely. stay with that notion and understand that notion. Um, it isn't a missionary kind of you know, service. So um, the other thing that I think is really important, at least for me right now, is the work is mostly, there's been an explosion of kind of, you know, semi-visible and visible um, uh, uh, mutual aid uh, spaces, networks, hubs, whatever you want to call them. And I think our work going forward is going to be how do we connect and link all these resources, all these, you know, networks? How do we, like, you know, you create your hub, but then your hub create, connects with another hub that connects with another hub. That's going to be a test of how we build real power that we can actually use and deploy in the service of ourselves and in a pushback against the state and uh, creating new uh, alternatives outside of the state. So I, I've been thinking a lot about that, about like, what are, how are we going to be able to do that? Because that to me feels like the urgent thing in the moment, regardless of whether we the whether the person who wins quote unquote the presidency is a democrat or a republican it doesn't matter we're gonna have to continue and expand our networks of support and help given what's going on in the world so let's keep working on that uh, last thing i do want to say is i think both for myself and dean maybe it seems a little bit strange for people maybe who don't know us or whatever but like i've been engaged in doing this kind of work for the entire time that I've been organizing, which has been like for 35 years. Like I'm not, this is not like a new thing. And while I started and started building organization as part of all of the organizations that I worked in, we've been actualizing mutual aid because we have to. So whether it was starting a program called Families in Touch in Chicago, where we gave rides to the families of kids who were incarcerated in a particular youth prison 10 years ago, whether it's the work of Liberation Library, which gives, you know, sends books to young people on the inside and asks them to correspond with us too, so that we learn about them, whether it's creating letter writing events and doing that for a million zillion years, whether it's, you know, like the, the list goes on and on, I think, and whether it's survived and punished in our work that we're doing with Commissary Fund and supporting people on the inside directly. So I don't see this as a separate part of organizing. It is organizing. It's got to be an integral part of your organizing because you're working with people who are most vulnerable. You have to ensure people's survival needs at all times. And if you're not doing that, then I'm not sure what you're doing. Um, and so I just want people to think about as we're moving forward that like this is an extra work 
this is the work. It's the yes. work connected to the big analytical thinking, people's readings, whatever. All that's great. All that's necessary. But without actually connecting to making sure people have their material needs met, um, you know, uh, what is it, Cabral? You know, people aren't fighting for ideas, but actually for their day-to-day -day sustenance and survival. Like, we are thinkers that we admire have taught us this over and over again. So I just wanted to point, point yeah. like, a, put a fine point on that because I think it's important to keep that in mind. No, it's, it's such a critical point because because this thing we're calling mutual aid is it's 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 an integral part of any grassroots organizing method. Mutual aid yeah. is a method, right? Yeah. And so it's a question of what kind of politics and analysis and movement it's tied to. So that's yeah. such a critical point. I don't think that's a final point. I think that's a major, major, major point that you just that you just highlighted for us. Amika, you wanted to add something. Um, yeah, I, I just also wanted to add that like the the skill part is is really, really important. And and Miriam's saying these are skills, you know, that were taken. Uh, all of our grandmothers threw food and 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 sewed and um uh and and stitched people up because there were no doctors um coming they couldn't afford them and so like redeveloping those skills is really important and just hoping that like whoever is seeing this there's like street medic community uh, collectives in almost every major city and short of that like talk to your friends and neighbors um about what can happen what's likely to happen what skills you have how do you grow those skills can depend on and and support um, each other because uh, you know this is still part of the drill right so we know that that with climate change we're going to see a lot more um, really bad storms where we're really going to have to just depend on each other. Dean, Dean maybe maybe let me throw to you to to see if there's any um, if there's any way that you'd want to elaborate or or respond to the call out that Miriam um, and really, everybody has been giving throughout this conversation, which is um, how do we how do we at the same time that we're acknowledging the long histories of solidarity, of care, of mutual aid, of security building among among vulnerable communities and peoples, um, is there something about this particular moment that gives an opportunity or really kind of highlights the necessity to bring all this different work together into some kind of um, broader network? Of, of collaboration of solidarity or something else i mean because you're you're kind of you're kind of one of the principal folks that um i've been going to, to to think about that that question yeah i mean i just want to say too like just building off what miriam just said what we're seeing happen right now the the national push and, and all this intense state work to try to get um governors to use their competency powers to let people out of prison the intensity of that work is directly sourced by the decades of mutual aid work to prisoners leading up to that, because that's, only, that's how we know what the conditions are. People who we're supposed to be separated from and supposed to not know, these deep relationships between people on inside and outside is what allows the work for the big push. It's what allows people, people who have been doing you know, prison education projects inside certain prisons are the ones who are able to finagle to get soap into prisoners right now. It's, it's the long-term, um, often not very glamorous, mutual aid work in the moments where there's just the ordinary horrible crises of capitalism, white supremacy, that allows when there's the peak crisis where more people suddenly are like, oh, wow, look, there are certain people who are more vulnerable where we can, um, you know, sort of uh, spin up to even greater level of mobilization. So I think it really, um, it really is deeply connected. Um, I think one thing I'll say, Dylan, about your question about how do we, um, in this question Miriam's asking, how do we, how do we, one way people might ask that is how do we scale up? And I think that I have a very strong opinion about this, which is that scaling up and increasing our coordination, our solidarity, 
our respect for each other's practices and our awareness of them is not about um, building one big organization. <laughs> it's not about, that, that's what's wrong with the state is it tries to solve local problems through one centralized, like they extract from you and then suppo they're supposed to give some kind of care back. And it, it misses all the local conditions on the ground. It misses all the specificities and knowledges and wisdom, which is actually the best way to respond to disaster. There's people who are right there and know each other best. They know, oh, down the block, there's a person who has a medical device that needs a battery and we're out of power. They know who's where. That's, we learn that every time there is any kind of disaster that the people in communities know the most. So we're not looking to scale up in the sense of standardizing, homogenizing, um, centralizing authority. What we're looking to do is increase our capacity to have more people plugged in. So one thing you see people talking about a lot is if you're building a neighborhood pod and the pod gets to be 15, 20 people, gets to be 40 people, maybe break it into two. Actually, we want to proliferate mutual aid projects. We want to proliferate organizations. We want more and more people to be in groups where they feel heard and seen, where they know they can express their opinion, where they can make decisions together. Those are the skills we need. We need to be skilling towards connection instead of isolation, which is what our current experience is. Um, in this kind of culture lead us to. So I just want to suggest that as, because I, I just think I, I have this conversation with a lot of people where people think scaling up, what we need is, is to scale up in the sense that this would be like a national political party basically mutual aid or something. I really don't think that's the case. I think we need to scale up by having more people mobilized in ways where they're really connected to each other and actually participating, not where they've got some representative somewhere saying something for them, right? That's our problem with our current government. It's, it's a deeply non-participatory. For the Everybody that's viewing and listening um, uh, to this conversation, I'm going to make sure that there's a significant list of of, of links, of um, readings, and so forth uh, in the description of this video that folks can refer to, so that you know you really don't have an excuse to not find a way to get involved in um, whatever form of of, of uh, mutual aid organizing is happening right near you right now. Um, so I want to express my appreciation to all of you. Um, I want to I want to say. You know, this is going to be an invaluable resource for the students, the organizers, the activists, the teachers, the scholars, the researchers who are taking a look at this. Uh, I'm in, I, I have deep sense of gratitude to all of you, and, and I just want to express my appreciation. So um, thank you all. All right. So again, this video is called Mutual Aid as a People's Movement in ASA 2020 Freedom Course. And again, it's on YouTube, and we've provided a link that'll be up on our webpage at weeklyrev.org. Uh, big thanks to all the folks who took part in that, learned quite a bit. Next up, going to take a, an extended music break since we didn't take one during the past hour or so. I'm uh, just going to keep on playing some music. And then we'll be back afterwards with maybe a few more news items. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot to process. And so, yeah, please do stay tuned. We'll be back in a bit. Um, it feels good to be back. Although I'm very worried about y'all. Mary tried to talk the pleasure back into being alive. Reminiscing about the apricots and blunts on pack and rye. Yeah. 
Welcome back. Heard some more music there. Last song was Die Young by Sylvan Esso. Before that, uh, Pizza Guy by Touch Sensitive. And first, when I uh, saw that, I wasn't sure the name of the band or the name of the song, as sometimes happens. And uh, next, uh, before that, we heard Arlo Parks with Hope. Oh, feeling very low energy today. Uh, just a lot in my mind, and sometimes it's difficult to let it all out here, but that's just going to do what I can. Wanted to share a few upcoming events and some items here that I had bookmarked. Um, the first one that I have up is happening on June 23rd, UN Human Rights Council event defending the lives of transgender women. And that's uh, happening on Wednesday, June 23rd from 6 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. Pacific time. Why is it so fucking early? Oh, probably because it's done. Okay. It's uh, three. It's like 3 p.m. in Geneva. So I get it. It's in, it's in Europe. It's going to take my uh, Americanized uh, self out of this and stop complaining about it. Okay. So this is um, an event. It's a virtual discussion on June 23rd during the 47th session of the UN Human Rights Council. 
And there's a keynote address by actress and activist Angelica Ross. It's moderated by Delaware State Senator Sarah McBride with, uh, with remarks by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Panelists include um, Tusinia Yamania Brown, ILGA World, uh, Ricky Nathanson from Casa Ruby, and Bianca Rodriguez from Comb Covis. And there's a lot of other organizations that are affiliated with this event. Um, and we'll post a link over on our website at weeklyrev.org. Also wanted to share some news from Haymarket Books, the Haymarket Books Not Bars program. Haymarket Books is committed to making our books available for free to people who are incarcerated in an effort to support those who are inside who are dealing with the immense violence of the prison system, we want to do what we can to connect people with radical books and opportunities for political education. We have worked for many years with organizations that send books inside, and we are expanding those efforts. We are raising funds to cover some of the cost of books and shipping as we continue and expand our donations of books to people who are incarcerated. Thank you so much for helping us to share our books with folks on the inside. And they have a link where you can make a donation. And they say, if you have a loved one inside, you can complete the form linked below to request books for them. Uh, solidarity with all oppressed people and free them all. I'm going to uh, share this once more. And we'll also provide a link on our website. Yeah, it's going to do that. All right. Yeah, very low energy. Next up, we have some more info from uh, Flying Over Walls, which is the Bay Area branch of Black and Pink. They have a new website up, so I wanted to share that. If you go to flyingoverwalls.com, and they have the letter writing project, they've got a lot of information there, which we will share on our webpage. So I'm gonna do that as well. Let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, what's this one? And also have a link to a Google Doc, that which we'll also share, which is Abolitionist Resources, 2021 um, from Black and Pink, Flying Over Walls Workshop. So there's a whole lot of lists, a whole lot of lists. <laughs> there's just a whole, wow. Uh, sometimes things just kind of catch up with you, I guess. Abolitionist resources, abolitionist organizations doing amazing work, including Black and Pink, Critical Resistance, uh, TGIJP, Anarchist Black Cross, Initiate Justice, Trans Pride Initiative, Survived and Punished, and CURB, which is C-U-R-B. You can find that at curbprisonspending.org. Um, what can we do? Become a pen pal with someone in prison through Black and Pink or Survived and Punished. Uh, sign up for Flying Over Walls monthly California birthday cards by joining their mailing list at flyingoverwalls.com. You can support prison abolition groups by uh, donating money. You can volunteer or intern, amplify their work. Uh, you can go to a mail night at the Ella Baker Center, ellabakercenter.org, or Critical Resistance, criticalresistance.org. You can fight against prison and jail expansion, educate yourself and the people around you, work in solidarity with people in prison, amplify their voices and work, make coalitions with groups working for abolition, talk with friends and community to come up with alternatives to relying on police, support allocation of resources away from the prison industrial complex and giving it to communities and integrate analysis of policing and criminalization into your work further reading on the pic prison abolition there's the cr abolitionist 
organizing toolkit. There is uh, Abolitionist Futures, Session 3, Feminist, Queer, Anti-Racist Abolition, Abolish Everything, Political Education Series, Week 7, Queer and Trans Abolition. Uh, we Do This Till We're Free by Miriam Kaba, who's one of the speakers in the video I played earlier. Prisons Make Us Safer, um, and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration by Victoria Law. Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Captive Genders edited by Nat Smith and Eric A. Stanley. Transformative Justice video series, uh, Bernard Center for Research on Women, they have a link. Uh, Mutual Aid is a People's Movement, so that was the video we played earlier. Instead of Prisons, a handbook for abolitionists edited by, edited by Prison Research Education Action, Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better by Maya Shenwer. Against Equality, Prisons Will Not Protect You, edited by Ryan Conrad. Um, I believe I've read that and found that to be very informative. Queer Injustice, the Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States uh, by Joey L. Mogul, Andrea J. Ritchie, and Kay Whitlock. What to do instead of calling the police, a guide, a syllabus, a conversation, a process. And there's a link uh, for activists, revolutionaries, and everyone. A zine with uh, forms of self and public care as alternatives to calling the police. So lots of great resources here, and I will also share this link on our page at weeklyrep.org. Check it out. Please visit it. Seriously. There is a lot of good information there, and I put a lot of time and energy into it. So uh, if you're listening right now, go to weeklyrep.org and uh, check out some of the information that we have shared there. All right, next up is another. Uh, it's PIC um, Abolition in one minute. So I'm going to share this. This is uh, from Instagram. Well, not from Instagram, but the platform that it was shared on is Instagram. So I'm going to share this and we'll also provide a link on our webpage. So here we go. And this is shared by OKJSPH. Hi, right, baby. Abolition 101. Let's get it. Abolition is a political vision and organizing strategy that's directly opposed to the prison industrial complex. The vision is a society in which police, punishment, and prisons is not the go-to answer to our problems, but rather our communities are safer and healthier because they are supported, equipped, and empowered to care for each other. Abolition doesn't mean people won't do bad things, but it does mean that our current reliance on the PIC does little to reduce violence and harm and actually perpetuates dysfunction rather than protecting us from it. The strategy is twofold. Create, dismantle. Create the conditions that promote healthy and loving communities. It's not the most police places that are the safest is the ones with the most resources. Dismantle the power and reach of the PIC and the larger systems of white supremacy that demands it. This takes deconstructing our ideas of power, punishment, and justice, as well as more tangible actions. But if abolition is an end goal with reasonable steps, why scare people away with divisive language instead of just focusing on reform? That's because liberation don't happen on accident. If we don't clearly and boldly name the end goal, we ain't never going to get there. Reform suggests that the system is broken and needs some updates or bug fixes. Abolition understands that the system is working exactly as designed, so we need a new system. All right. Um, it is now 1.44 p.m., so it's time to wrap up. I've got a few more songs lined up. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. If you like the show, please donate over at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Check out our website. I've, I've mentioned it numerous times. Got a lot of info there. Um, thanks so much for uh, tuning in, and we'll be back. Well, actually, oh, yeah, um, gonna. I've got some work lined up and some – time i won't be here uh, over the summer so there may be some repeat episodes if there are any episodes in particular you'd like to have shared again please do uh, connect with us over at weeklyrev.org send a message let us know 
and uh, we'll be back again soon. Uh, have a great weekend, everyone. My love, she speaks like silence Without ideals of violence She doesn't have to say she's faithful Yet she's true like ice, like fire And make promises by the hours My love, she laughs like the flowers Valentine's can't buy her In the dime stores and bus stations People talk of situations Read books, repeat quotations Draw conclusions on the wall Some speak of the future My love, she speaks softly She knows there's no success like failure And that failure's no success at all The cloak and dagger dangles Madams light the candles In ceremonies of the horsemen even the pawn must hold a grudge Statues made of matchsticks Crumble into one another My love winks, she does not bother She knows too much to argue or to judge Expecting all the gifts that wise men bring The wind howls like a hammer The night blows rainy My love, she's like some raven At my window with a broken wing
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on the podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you and you listen to the podcast and watch the movie at the same time. Yeah. L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, That's every Sunday, two PM Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent five percent Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later I finally get to the show. Five PM. Let's hear the theme song. Oh let's watch full length. Oh let's do a full minute promo. Oh never mind. Bye. See you. See you next month. I was just leaving the theater. Convertible, 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. And I started to do some thinking. Flat black plastic. Big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. I am a total fan of Laurie Stone. Voices out.
Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetic...